ladies and gentlemen, to the Peak Endurance Podcast with your host, Isabel Ross. As a personal trainer, accredited endurance coach, and now podcast host, Isabel is bringing you the best advice, tips, and tricks for your health and athletics. She's won two Australian Trail Championships, a 24-hour track race, and many, many more races, as well as participated in the notorious Barkley Marathons. So she knows her stuff. And now, since she's raced all over the world, she's bringing all that knowledge and giving it to you so you can become a better performer as a whole. So make sure to continue to tune into the Peak Endurance Podcast to get your body right, your mind right, and your health on point. Wild Earth Australia is the online store to help you make the most out of the outdoors with top quality gear at great prices. Peak Endurance podcast listeners can use the discount code Peak Endurance, that's Peak Endurance, all one word with caps, to get 10% off at checkout. Now, who doesn't like saving money? Head on over to wildearth.com.au to get everything you need for your next adventure. So you like running, but you're feeling pain or irritation. You can't enjoy it like you once did. Or worse, your performance has taken a big hit. Now you're reminiscing on the good times where the wind blew past your ears. Nature looked lovely as you passed it. What are you waiting for? Go and visit the specialist at Health and High Performance. With the latest in technology and a wealth of experience, the team at Health and High Performance can help you with all your running injury and performance needs. Let's get you back to doing something you love with the results you're capable of. Head over to healthhp.com.au slash run, or you can find them on Instagram at Health High Performance. Health and High Performance are located in Mount Albert, Melbourne, but are available for telehealth appointments, not only Australia-wide, but also around the world. So contact them now on their website to find out more. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Episode 128 is an interview with Brody Sharp. Brody is a physiotherapist at the Breakthrough Running Clinic, as well as the Run Smarter podcast host. Brody comes onto this episode to discuss his latest book, How to Strive for an Injury Free PB, and don't we all want to do that? I hope you enjoy this chat, and if you do, would you be able to do me a favour and subscribe and write a review? It truly doesn't take too much time, but it does mean a lot to me. Not only does doing this help to boost the ratings of the show, but it also increases the show's audience reach, meaning more athletes like yourself get to listen. And to be honest, too, during these dragging on days of lockdown, it gives me something fun to do reading the reviews, and I really appreciate them. I have limited coaching places left. If you are planning a big race in 2022, and I'm sure we all are, just to make up for the last 18 months or so, now is the time to get started on your training, believe it or not. To secure a place on Team Peak Endurance, email me, isabel at peakendurancecoaching.com.au to get the ball rolling. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Tom here. I'm back with some more thoughts. And today I just wanted to actually talk about uh, training and running itself and different terrains and missing it up whilst training, especially if you're doing longer training runs or longer training weeks, sorry. Uh, I found uh, when it comes to overuse injuries uh, and niggles that I'd often get them if I'm doing the same runs over and over again to make up my weekly distance goal. For instance, like the same pace uh, on a you know, gravel path 
um, most of the time during the week. I'll find that I'll start to get the eagles and the niggles and overuse injuries then. But if I'm missing it up and I'm on the trails and I'm hiking hills, um, whilst also still doing, you know, you're running around the streets or on the road, I find I get uh, less niggles and my training is actually better for it and they actually end up complementing each other because um, also if you do too much hiking and too much trails then you notice your pace will start to slow down um, so I, I've been finding uh, more recently and just kind of over time that if you mix up your training and make sure you still have your specific se- uh, sessions for speed or whatever your goal is um, if you mix your training up to hit your weekly distance goal it actually complements each other and really at the end you get less overuse injuries which means you can train uh, the way you want to train which then means you're obviously going to improve more so than if you do the same thing over and over again and get an injury and can't train uh yeah so that's just a quick thought this week thanks Brody, and welcome to the Peak Endurance Podcast. Thanks, Izzy. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no worries. Good to have you back. What is it now? Is this the second or third time we've we've done this? It might be the third, I think, if I'm keeping track properly. Mm. Now, obviously, you have your own podcast, the Run Smarter Podcast, and um, and it's always good to talk to another podcaster. And how's things in your world going? Uh, things are going quite well. I'm in the middle of moving house. My, um, I have, well, for the last couple of years, I've been a physio for runners, but I've been strictly 100% online and mm. just seeing runners around the world. But I'll still be doing that. But as we're transitioning to this new house, we're going to fit out part of the house to convert it to a bit of a clinic. And so very exciting time. Start seeing um, in-person consults once again. And so, yeah, exciting times. I'm looking forward to it. Now, you were online basically before, um, obviously, the pandemic. So you were really um, ahead of your time. Why was that? Um, yeah, I, I guess it's a, a bit opportunistic. But the, I think I started seeing uh, my first paid clients maybe two or three months prior to us going into lockdown or the world going into lockdown. And it was just, it just made sense for me. I was going out from working for eight years in clinics, seeing in-person people and wanting to spend more time around just runners. And so I thought maybe opening up a clinic where I'm just seeing runners, but then uh, as I started building the Run Smarter podcast and I was getting international listeners, um, a few of my other colleagues were starting to do their own digital practices and thought, why don't you just do a 100% online clinic to start with? And it made total sense in my mind because a lot of runners who do get injured, they, well, a lot of the runners that contact me have had an injury for several months, sometimes several years, and they don't need the hands-on thing, the hands-on therapy that an acute injury might require. And it's all about education, like running programs, strength programs, building out like, uh, say, a running analysis if they send me videos of them running, uh, shoe analysis if they send me photos of their shoes, and just a lot of that can just be done online and just started thought saw how it go saw some really really good results with a lot of runners who had had chronic injuries mm. and realized that even though they were seeing people in person there was a lot of 
missing gaps within their management. And so just talk them through it and make sure they executed on their management plans appropriately. And yeah, and once I did the online, I can broaden my horizons to around the world and see runners around the world. So that's where it's launched me into today. Well, it certainly increases your ability to help a, a larger number of people, and that's for sure. And um, I totally get, because I was wondering how it would work with the online, but I totally get that because unless you're actually in the acute phase, you don't need that hands-on. So yeah, yeah, that's awesome and, and good for everyone to know. So now you've also just recently put out an ebook. Can you tell the listeners a bit about that? Yeah. So the ebook itself, um, I actually released uh, another ebook, like volume one of this ebook, a couple of years ago as I was launching my podcast. And the first volume was these 10 universal principles to overcome and prevent running injuries. And so every chapter, there's 10 chapters, every chapter covers one principle that runners need to know. And that actually covers the top 10, uh, the first 10 episodes of the Run Smarter podcast. I talked through in detail all of those chapters. And then I thought it's probably time that I do a volume two because yes, we want to prevent running injuries, but most of the runners out there also want to increase their running performance. And so I decided to put out volume two, which is how to strive for an injury-free PB. And it's how to get your personal best, your personal records, uh, how to get your best marathon time in the safest way possible. And so the same principles follow. I've got 10 chapters there. Every chapter is uh, a principle or a lesson that the runner would need to know in order to increase their running speed and increase their performance safely. Excellent. So what we thought we would do um, is go through a couple of the chapters. Um, so first off, let's talk about goal setting. Now, yeah. Why is that like the first most important thing? I mean, I know obviously you want to have a goal of a race. That's pretty obvious. But once you've got that goal of the race, don't you just go bang straight into your program? Well, it's it's all about developing that plan, isn't it? It's yeah. you. First of all, a lot of people think that, oh, let me just train for the marathon or let me just train for my second marathon and maybe pick a time, maybe see, uh, maybe have that. They rarely write things down. They very rarely have like the process of what, what it actually requires to get there. And so, yes, the, the chapter one is about goal setting, but it's also about planning for that goal in the first place. And it's, it's a chapter where the, like, once you write it down, you visualize it, you look at it every day. It's something that can keep you on track rather than having like a, a plan that might not, that might be a bit fleeting or a plan that might go awry if an injury happens or if it's a bit too ambitious and you start striving for it and you might, it's looking halfway through that you might not reach it. But goal setting is like the, the number one chapter in the book because it's the most important thing if you want to have a goal, if, you, if you're goal orientated and you want to strive for something. It's, it's something that a lot of people don't necessarily think about or don't really prioritize. And so there's a few lessons in there. One, I think writing down your goals is the most clearest thing possible. Um, two, sometimes having an A goal and a B goal and a C goal can be really advantageous for someone. I, I know runners themselves, like the mentality and the personality of a runner is to hold themselves, like is to try and find a goal that's like their reach goal. It's well beyond, sometimes beyond their capabilities, but it's also something that's testing them, really testing them. And so if everything goes really according to plan and you've 
you've sort of like shocked yourself that you're able to perform these abilities. Sometimes that's why we need that A goal. But we also know that life throws us curveballs and we know that sometimes that some things might come up, an injury might happen or like a race might get delayed or you might get an illness or you might um, just be under the weather for a couple of weeks that might set you back. We also need like a plan B, like a, a B goal to aim for. And so it's all planning these things out. It's all writing these things down and then working out sensibly. Okay, my marathon is in 20 weeks time. This is the goal that I have. Where am I currently? And how can I sort of bridge that gap in order to make that goal achievable? And so that comes with, you know, writing out marathon plans. It comes along with having a bit of wiggle room there. If there's, if an injury does happen or if you do get sick, making sure there is a bit of wiggle room and having that plan step-by-step in order to best achieve that goal, because there's, it's very hard to um, improve on something. It's very hard to reach a goal if you're not measuring things along the way. And if you follow that plan and it makes sense and the progressions sort of make sense within the, the written down plan, then you're, the odds of achieving that goal like dramatically increase. And also it's really motivating to to reach those sort of goal milestones and actually achieve them, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. And like one, like say for an example, one of the most common things that happen is someone signs up for a marathon. They say, okay, my goal is to um, finish this marathon under four hours and I'll they look at a marathon that's say 20 weeks away and they find a 20 week marathon plan. They say, fantastic. This is perfect timing. And then they start week one and then they just see how they go throughout the 20 weeks because by the end of that 20 weeks is marathon time. And then you should be ready, prepared, um, fit enough to finish that marathon. But in a scenario where you get up to week 12 and then an injury happens and you have to take a week off, and then you try and go back into your running and the injury is still there. So you, you spend a little bit of time uh, like nursing it, maybe doing 50% of what your current capacity is. How do you, you, you've already lost like two weeks of your marathon plan. It's like, well, how do I return back? Do I go, do I jump forward to week 14, which is where I should be? Do I try and accelerate myself? Um, do I write out my own plan? And usually when that falls when that sort of scenario happens, people usually return back too quickly. They're like, they might decide, okay, let me just jump into week 14. Then I'm back on track. And that's too much for that injury or too much for your body. Then it flares up and breaks down again. And you need to take another couple of weeks off. And it's usually that tricky spot where people will have to revert. Oh, let me just do a half marathon or let me just delay it until another time. Or let me just walk the marathon because I'm handling this injury. And it's only because like in the uh, setting out that the goal setting, setting out that planning phase, they haven't left enough wiggle room for these possibilities to occur because we know running injuries are so prevalent amongst runners, especially those who train for something and have to build up towards something, your likelihood of injury increases. And so allowing a couple of weeks of a bit of wiggle room or a bit of a buffer can be something that you need to do in your goal setting and in your plan in order for, if it, if it, all goes according to plan and you get uh, through that 20 week process without any injuries, then you've got two weeks to decide what you want to do after that. And so um, it's that forecasting that really sets you up for success. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, and that's exactly right. And, and I was also wondering with the A goals and the B goals, um, 
like the beagles, should they still be, you know, a bit of a stretch? Because we don't want to have get to the point where we just revert back to something too easy. Yeah, I think all the goals you write down should be, uh, you should be happy if you achieve all those goals. Like even if it's A, B or C goal, if you achieve that C goal, you should be very, very happy. It's So the, the um, benchmark that you set for yourself should all be like a successful outcome, whether you get A, B or C. If someone says, oh, if, if currently they've run a four hour, uh, four hour marathon and their goal is to get, 350 and their B goal is four and their C goal is 410. Um, and then they, they get, they've had a couple of hiccups along the way. They get their 410 marathon and then they're just upset because it's not their PB. That's not really a goal. It's, it's not really setting themselves up for success. And so definitely um, it's good that you highlight that the, the goals that you do set for yourself should be stretching. They should be challenging you. That's why we set goals. They should be challenging you and you should be happy um, when you achieve them, no matter what the goal is set, no matter whether it's at A, B or C, you should be happy regardless. And runners need to be, um, they need to be kinder to themselves these days. I know we, we put ourselves under so much scrutiny, so much like self-criticism. And if we don't achieve like these really high expectations we hold upon ourselves, um, we're really down. And so I think running in general, runners in general, preparing for a race in general, we should just, you know, be pretty kind to ourselves. Yeah, I agree. And especially in these times with um, so much uncertainty with races, what would you say like could be a possible beagle? Let's say, um, you know, you're, you're training for a marathon. Um, now, I'm pretty sure Melbourne Marathon's being postponed, but let's just pretend that it hadn't been. And, and so we're training for Melbourne and then it gets postponed or gets cancelled. What could be a possible beagle that we could go for that would keep us motivated and keep us feeling like we've achieved something or any well, race. It could be any race. I'm just using Melbourne as an example. Yeah. And I guess you'll have to ask the runner like their specific kind of outcomes, but I should say as well, this volume two of this ebook, it follows like this parable of a runner who's training for a marathon and his, um, this character, his previous marathon PB was four hours, 15, uh, four hours, 15 minutes. And he set his A goal for this illustrious uh, sub four marathon. And so he wanted to get a PB for himself. That's what he wanted to do. And that sub four hour was that A goal. The B goal that he set himself was some was directly in between his current PB and that sub four. So it was kind of around that um, like 410, some, somewhere along those lines. And then the C goal was one second quicker than his previous um, PB. And so that's a pretty good example. If you, if you get to, if you get to your C goal and you've achieved a PB, even if it's just one second, then you'd, you'd still be happy. Um, so that was the example I used within the book. But if someone, if a race is canceled, they can obviously do a virtual race or do it themselves, um, depending where your levels of motivation are. But Running is a, is a sport where you can like have a wide variety of exercises and a wide variety of goals that you have. It might be tackling hills. It might be doing a sub or it might be tackling like a 10 K PB. It might be a 5 K PB. It might be your best kilometer or your best mile. Um, it, it, it can be a whole bunch of things, whole number of things. And so 
if a race is cancelled, I, I, I would really try and self-reflect on the runner, what kind of sparks their motivation, why they're getting motivated to do certain things and put down on paper a couple of different ideas. And if one of them or a couple of them really like sort of ignite a bit of passion or a bit of excitement, then I would stick to that. So if maybe it's a marathon, if you're training for a marathon, then it gets canceled. How about a half marathon PB or maybe just a, maybe a local race that's still on that's around your area. Or maybe if there's something that's a goal, that's, that doesn't require a race that you can start striving towards. And so a lot of runners are goal orientated. They kind of need something in front of them to keep them going. Um, so yeah, just realize that there's a whole bunch of different things that you can be doing. Um, there's a whole bunch of challenges out there that can, that can be um, achieved and can be tackled that require a lot of planning and a lot of uh, building upon and can tackle a lot of, or can require a lot of challenging moments um, in your training schedule. So just pick something that excites you, pick something that you might not uh, think about something that requires a bit of variety and yeah, keep that, keep that uh, excitement, keep that passion kind of ignited. Yeah. Yep. No, I agree. Good advice. All right. So we're going to skip forward a few chapters and go to um, chapter six, which is running technique and economy. What can you talk to us about that? Yeah. And there's a lot of um, misconceptions here when it comes to running technique running economy. Um, so I thought I would bust a few myths within this running chapter and then also talk about what things can be done when it comes to the, the running technique to increase your running economy. Because like I said, volume two is all about increasing your running performance. We can't really have a chapter and not talk about how to improve on efficiency and running economy, which in my mind is a very similar term. And for those who aren't familiar, so your running economy is almost uh, how efficient you are at utilizing oxygen, how efficient you are at moving your body in order to not expel as much energy and dissipate as much energy as possible. And so if, you, if you've got two runners running side by side, they're running at the exact same speed. The one who is more economical is spending less energy. They're utilizing oxygen more. They're just a bit more efficient. And so they would be able to last a longer distance if those two runners were to run side by side. In the yep. same uh, two runners, if they had a, a goal in mind, if they were both trying to run 10K as fast as they can, the, the runner who is more economical, they can operate at higher speeds uh, and feel less tired in a way. And so they would complete the 10K time trial um, as an example faster. And so... We want to know, is there anything that we can do with our running technique uh, in order to improve our running economy? And so you might hear a lot of, like if someone was to Google something or look onto Facebook, there's a ton of beliefs, a ton of philosophies around how to improve your running economy, which isn't really backed up by evidence. Um, one of the most common is you need to transition away from a heel strike, like heel strike is the devil. Um, and you want to become a four foot runner in order to improve your running efficiency. There's no evidence to show that supports um, running efficiency. There's no evidence to support that transitioning will increase your running or help your running performance. But what that does increase your running run. performance? Well, many of the top world marathoners heel strike, don't they? Exactly. Yeah. And there was a good study to show that um, halfway through a marathon, they had a look at everyone's strike pattern and found that around 98 to, uh, 
85 to 90% of runners are heel strikers. And that's amongst the elites. It's amongst the middle pack. It's amongst the back of the pack kind of runners. And so it's very common. It's very prevalent, but you can get con- uh, a heel contact, which is too far in front of your body, which is what we don't want. Mm-hmm. And so this is one of the tips to increase your running economy. If you are uh, contacting, no matter what, the, the heel, the forefoot, the midfoot, if your initial contact is too far in front of your body or too far in front of your center of mass, that can produce a breaking force, which is what we don't want. We want to minimize our breaking force as much as we can if we want to improve uh, running economy. And so what some anecdotal uh, experiences might, might come forth is someone has said, I've transitioned from a heel strike to a forefoot strike and I am feeling so much better. I'm running so much faster. I just feel like I have so much more energy they have probably, they were probably overreaching with their heel and now they're contacting more underneath their center of gravity with their forefoot. And the same way someone can transition that way, you can transition from a heel strike uh, contacting really far in front of your body to still contacting with your heel, but more underneath your body and the same effect happens. Um, Conversely, I should probably say that if you were to transition from a heel strike to a forefoot strike, you are putting yourself at risk for an injury in that transition period, because the tissues of the body have to handle like a different load as a severely different load. And I think people might understand if they've ever tried trying, if they're used to running with their heel and they try and contact with their forefoot, their calves, their Achilles, like all the muscles within their feet, they just get overworked because they're just not used to producing that amount of force. And so it's a lot safer to still contact with your heel, but just make sure it's a little bit further underneath your body, reduces the braking force, improves your running economy. And um, that's, that's usually where I would find a lot of, um, a lot of runners. There's overreaching is not very common amongst runners, but if it is in a runner, I think every runner who has, who is overreaching should be increasing or changing uh, that running strike pattern. So how would we do that? Is that through, um, increasing our cadence good question good follow-up i think the the two are very closely linked if someone is over striding they will most likely have a lower cadence which is the amount of steps that you take per minute and they bounce up and down quite a lot they're taking quite large steps and they're they're moving up and down quite slowly it's almost like they're running on the moon they're just taking really slow steps uh it seems they're taking really low step low steps Uh, So if you see someone who is overstriding, we look at their cadence and their cadence is like 150, maybe under 150. We have a look at them and we say, okay, how about we try increasing your cadence by 10% and we bump them up to say 160, 165. Uh, We maybe get a metronome. We put them on a treadmill so they don't increase their running speed. They stay at the exact same speed that they're meant to. And we just get them to step to the beep. Then we just see what happens because they have to take quicker steps and step a lot quicker, they simply don't have enough time to reach out in front of them and they kind of panic and have to take shorter steps and that automatically will correct that overstride. And that's why the, the two are very closely linked. You can't, you can't reach out in front of your body really far and try and contact and try and have 170 steps per minute the same way that you um, you can't really contact underneath your body with a really slow cadence. They're kind of very, very closely linked. 
And so sometimes when I'm working with someone and they're on a treadmill, they're running at a certain speed, you just have a metronome um, by their side and just slowly dial it up and just see how they fare. And if they feel quite comfortable with it, if they're okay, they might feel a bit weird for the, the first couple of seconds, but if it corrects their overstride and they're kind of getting used to it, then that's a cadence that they, or they, they probably should work on increasing their cadence, I should say. What else can we do to improve our running economy? A lot of people uh, don't really pay attention to the weight of their shoes, but mm. there is a, there's a lot of good evidence to show that the lighter shoe that you go with increases your running economy and increases your running performance. <clears throat> the trade-off with that, where there is, there's starting to be exceptions to the rule with um, shoe manufacturers and the type of foam that they're using. But the usual trade-off, if you go with a lighter shoe, it's less support, yeah. which means that you can't instantly try, if you're used to wearing like standard shoes, which are, you know, maybe 500 grams, something like that, 400 grams. And then you try and transition to a shoe, which is 200 grams with less support. If you try and make that drastic change too suddenly, again, too much pressure through the feet, too much pressure through the plantar fascia, the Achilles, the calf. And there's this overload that happens, which increases your likelihood of injury. You can still transition to that shoe, but it requires time. It requires patience and requires your body going through this adaptation phase in order to get strong enough to wear those shoes that don't offer a lot of support. And like I said, there are shoes these days that are quite light and do offer support with different foam technologies, but that's usually the trade-off. But there are studies out there. There's several studies that use different timeframes and use different shoes. Um, but generally speaking, if you transition to a shoe that's a hundred grams lighter, you increase your running economy by about two or 3%. And so it could be quite significant, especially if you make sure if you have a runner that is or like a shoe that's 500 grams, it's quite clunky, quite, quite big, quite supportive. Um, you'll find that it's a massive change if you change it by 200 grams, um, huge, yeah. huge difference. I think the, the shoes that I run in currently, which are minimal shoes, but they're kind of around 150, 180 grams, which is extremely light, but I just feel really good running in them. Um, it can, a little bit, maybe a little bit of placebo as well on top of what the evidence shows with the light, the, the, um, the effects of the light shoes, but I just feel great in them. And so, if someone wants to improve their running performance, if they want to improve their running economy, they can have these um, technique changes. If you are overstriding, you can correct that. But it also, if you do have 500 grams shoes, then maybe it's worth trying something a bit lighter. So would you re recommend a, a light shoe like that even for long runs? <clears throat> Say that again, sorry. Would you recommend a light shoe like that even for long runs? Uh, if you're adapted to it, yes, but it requires a long time to adapt to them. So for example, um, my if I was to go for a long run, I'd still wear my light, unsupportive shoes only just because I feel my feet are strong enough. And if it's a 15K run, well, I've also done 12, 13, 14K runs before that to know that my long run, I'm strong enough for that long run. But they might get to a stage where I'm doing a little bit of speed work, I'm doing a little bit of um, maybe strides, doing a little bit of calf workout. And on a particular week or two, if my calves are quite tight or my Achilles is getting a little bit sore, if I have plantar fasciitis or something that flares up, I wouldn't wear those minimalist shoes for my long run. I'd 
I'd make the sensible decision of swapping out to something more supportive. So I can still work out those big Ks, but um, it's not my whatever injury or whatever area of my body is tight and sore. It's not copying the brunt of the, the exercise because that's usually the trade-off. And so yes. I do have a replacement that has, offers a lot more support just in case I need to swap it out and give those tissues a bit of a rest. Yep. Now that's fair enough. Now I know I said before we started recording that we weren't going to talk necessarily about strength training, but can strength training help with running economy? hundred percent, hundred percent. There's plenty of evidence to show that. Um, and you're more, one thing that's a little bit counterintuitive and a myth that's out there is that if you strength train and you stick to high rep body weight exercises, you're not going to reap the same rewards as to if you were um, slowly adapting and training your body to lift heavier. Yeah. And like I said, it sounds counterintuitive. If you're an endurance athlete, if you're running for several hours, you want to train your body to be an endurance athlete. So you want to do more endurance, but the, the evidence shows the opposite. The evidence shows if you were to do body weight versus a similar group that does heavy strength work, the ones that do heavy strength work, they get better at running, whether that be a 5K distance, a 10K distance, a half marathon, a marathon. Um, it's just working out all your weaklings. And one of the analogies I like to say is like you have different strength buckets. You have your endurance strength bucket which is you running for several hours, you have this absolute strength bucket, which is how much you can lift like a slow, heavy, say squat. Then you have like a power bucket, which is power plyometrics, like doing something under force, but under a quick period of time, doing something rapidly. And what a lot of runners do is they, through, the, through their entire week, when they do their cardio, when they do their cross training, they're running, they are filling up their endurance bucket. And it's almost full to the brim, especially if someone's really testing themselves, marathon training, whatever. And then they get into the gym and they do high rep bodyweight exercises. That's still trying to fill up your endurance bucket, which is full up to the brim. Whereas while you're at the gym, you might as well spend time working on a, um, challenging your body in a totally different way so that you can fill out these weaklings and you can kind of get the muscle to utilize under a different circumstance. And that's, there is uh, physically and physiologically um, evidence to show that strength training does recruit different muscle fibers. It helps you recruit different muscle fibers in different circumstances, rewires the, um, the nervous system a different way. It helps deliver oxygen in a different way. It's just challenging your body in a different way. And so while if, while if you're training for a marathon, you do want to do strength training twice a week and build up. If it gets closer to marathon day, say if you're a couple of weeks out, then maybe you can sub out a strength session and replace it with maybe another run session or a rest day just to get more specific to that race that you're preparing for. So the specificity does creep up a little bit. But if you wanted to increase your running performance and you want to build your body in order to be as efficient as you can, you do need to do some strength training twice a week. And it does need to be heavier while you need to slowly adapt to in order to lift heavier weights. Yeah, no, I'm in 100% agreement with you there. Anything else for running economy? Um, they're the two massive ones. They're yeah. the two really big ones. I think um, you might have some light, some very subtle cueing exercises depending, but it's all depending on the individual athlete. Like if someone's 
say arm swing is a little bit, if they're too like tensed up, if someone's really too um, switched on through the core and they're bracing a little bit too much, if someone's had a certain injury multiple times, there are a few things that we can change here and there, but they're only one percenters and it's yeah. the advice is only based on the, the individual. However, the overstride, the cadence and the light shoes just applies to everyone if you're eliciting that. And they're the big ones. They're like the 50, 60, 70% differences. Yeah. Yeah. So when we're talking about um, running technique and economy, you're not advocating changing everything about the way, the way you run, just little tweaks that will help. Yeah. And like certain running coaches, like especially if you're working with track athletes, like a lot of that is drills. A lot of that is technique. A lot of that is like getting yeah. all the angles and all the joints down to a specific angle and really drilling in runners. But I think with recreational runners, the side that I take is a lot of runners self-optimize their own running technique, depending on their own stiffness, depending on their own, like kind of where they feel familiar with their movements. And so we don't really need to change a lot about the real nitty gritty specifics of running because the body adapts to that style of running as well. And we can easily say if someone has a narrow step width or like a crossover pattern where they're contacting their right foot on the left side of their body, we've seen like that looks inefficient. It looks like you can improve your running economy if you correct that. But we see elite athletes have a, a tremendous amount of crossover pattern, tremendous amount of pronation. Like the, it looks like their, their knees are collapsing in. It looks horrendous, but they're elite athletes. They're performing at the top of their game. And who's to say you need to change your running performance because the body has adapted to that running style. It's built up the capacity. It's built up the speed. It's built the ability to produce force in that angle that they've been running in for so many years. And so the body does a good job of adapting to a certain running technique. Um, there may be room for discussion if someone in that example was to have, say, a tibialis posterior tendinopathy or like a shin splints where they're constantly getting shin splints over and over and over again. And then you look at their running pattern and they have this huge crossover pattern. There's probably warrant there to maybe change something about their mechanics, but this is where it comes into individually tailored advice for an individual based on their injury history, performance history, those sort of things. Yep. Yep. No, that's fair enough. All righty. Now the next chapter we're going to talk about is chapter seven, which is running and cross training when injured. So when we are injured um, and we've gotten advice from someone like yourself or, or, or you know, some specialist, um, is it sometimes okay to run or should we always give up running when we're injured? I can talk about this all day. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> the, and th this is like one of the several episodes I have on the Run Smarter podcast is advice around, well, do we run with an injury? Do we not run with an injury? Do we completely rest? Um, it's a trap that a lot of runners get into if they get it wrong. And it's probably not what you're expecting because there is a, a very common experience or example where, well, there's, there's two. There's one where a runner is injured and they keep running and their injury just doesn't go away. It doesn't get better, but it's okay. It's, it might be slowly getting worse week by week until it gets to a point where they can't run and they say, okay, I'm finally going to give up. I'm finally going to rest it. Let me see how I go with, um, with resting. And by that stage, it's really irritable. It's really sensitive. It's really hard to, um, 
it's really hard to overcome. That might take several weeks for it to settle. And it's because their level of motivation to seek help or to rehab it is not that high at that stage. Like I often say runners don't get assessed by a physio when they're in pain because they run through pain all the time. They get assessed when their injury is so bad that they can't run. It's like the day they've realized they can't run because of this injury, they're booking in for a physio session the next day. It's just because the the motivation levels are just through the roof. And And then they want to be ready to run again the next day, don't they? Yeah. And then they're like, just get me better. So I've got this marathon in two weeks. So just get me better. And then I'll run the marathon in two weeks. And (laughs) it's all to do with motivation levels. Like I would constantly see people with low back pain um, in clinics when I was working in clinics and it'd be this like stubborn, say 60 year old male who has had back pain for 10 years and never gone, saw a doctor, never gone, saw a physio, but now his back is sore to the point where he can't work or he can't play with his grandkids. It's like that moment, it's that moment in time where it's so bad that he can't do the things he loves. That's when he books in the next day. It's just a motivation that we see in everyone. Yeah. So there's that side of things, but there's also the runner who, every time they get a little niggle or every time they're injured, they just shy away from running. They say, let me just take a week or two off. Let me let my body recover. And I'm sure it will just be fine in a week or two. Let me just start running. Yeah. What was that? Magically disappear. Yep. Yep. Cause they're fearful. They're, They're scared that it might get worse. And that's actually as detrimental as example number one, because what you're doing when an injury arises and there's certain tissues within the body that's sore, they become quite sensitive to load. So in the, in the interim, in this like really short period of time, that structure actually becomes quite weak. It becomes quite weak to load. But what you do, if you take a step back from and address it with complete rest, even if it's over a week or two weeks, that sensitive structure continues to weaken. It continues to, to become quite weak. And so when you return to run, you say, oh, let me just see how I go for 30 minutes. That 30 minute run might be, um, might surpass your current capacity for that tissue. And then it flares up again. And then you think, oh, maybe I just need more time off. Maybe I just need another week and then I'll be okay. And then you take that next week for complete rest and then further weakens again. And I say this throughout my podcast all the time. It's this pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral that is very often the case when it comes to injuries because you either continue running through this pain and the tissues become more and more sensitive and more and more weak. And then you can, the amount of running tolerance just diminishes, or you're taking this complete rest where it continues to diminish and you're starting off when it eventually settles, your starting kind of tolerance is really, really low. It's nowhere near the capacity that it once was. And so this is why the chapter around cross-training and running with an injury um, needs to be educated to runners. And like I said, I talk about this all the time on the podcast, but there's certain principles that you can follow. There's certain things that you need to know when you are injured and how to interpret pain signals, those sort of things. Um, One of the biggest lessons that you can learn when you're injured is, especially when it comes to say tendon issues or say muscle issues, is that we need to pay attention to symptoms over 24 hours once we subject it to exercise. So, and sometimes low levels of pain are, are acceptable. I usually say under a four out of 10 pain, which is very subjective. Like everyone has different pain thresholds, but 
a one, two, three out of 10 pain is usually acceptable, provided that it doesn't flare up after, after exercise and it doesn't flare up the next morning. And so it's those three snapshots, the during, the after, the next morning that we really need to interpret, okay, has it flared up my symptoms? And if it hasn't, then what you've done the day before has been quite acceptable. And so a run, if you have knee pain and if you go for a run and it's only a two out of 10 pain throughout that run, and it's fine afterwards. And there's only like a one or two out of 10 pain the next day. Whatever you've done in that run has been quite acceptable. We're still applying load to the body. So those tissues are still being subject to load. So they're not diminishing in their weakness, but we're also um, keeping the body exercising. You're feeling good when you are exercising, getting some fresh air, you're getting the blood circulating around the body. And so these benefits can happen, but following these principles as well, we want to see a general improvement, a slow trend week by week that this injury is improving. If it's staying stagnant or if it's slowly getting worse, then that means what we're currently doing is too much or we need to do something else. And so if we need to do something else, that's when cross-training can come into it. That's where if you have a knee injury and you can't really tolerate a lot of levels of running, then maybe we go swimming or maybe we do some skipping or maybe we do some squats. Um, find whatever your new capacity is and we need to start training within that. So someone might get really horrendous, really irritable knee pain. They can't tolerate walking. They can't tolerate like going on the bike. They can't tolerate the cross trainer. Um, where do they start? Well, you might start with just some really simple wall sits, just a, like a quarter wall sit. Just do that for a couple of days. Then by the next day, you're probably able to do some lunges. And then by the next day, you're probably able to do some step-ups. By the next day, you're probably, or by the end of the week, you're probably back to doing skipping or doing some elliptical. And this is where a physio or a coach really comes into it to help suggest a lot of these options. But we're still following the same principles along that track. We're still paying attention to the same pain levels, seeing how you fare afterwards, and then progressively um, making it more challenging, challenging the tissues a little bit more and strengthening up those tissues, that tissue tolerance in order for you to overcome that injury. Yeah, no, that, that's good advice. Do you also ever recommend um, like incorporating just a small amount of cross-training within your standard program so that if things do go awry, you've got a fallback activity that you are already a little bit adept at? Yeah. Um, for, for more reasons than one, I think people should be doing strength training. If they're one to run, say you've got a runner who's running five or six times a week and they're constantly injured with either the same injury over and over again or different injuries, they need to sub out their running with something different because you need to realize that running related injuries are overuse injuries. It's applying the same load to the body every step that you take at the same angle, at the same force, at the same rate over and over and over again, hundreds of thousands of times over the course of the week. And that's why we get these repetitive injuries. But if you sub out one of these running sessions per week and fill it with swimming or fill it with the rowing machine or fill it with the bike, you are still maintaining your fitness, the same current level of fitness, but you're just subjecting your body to a different level of fitness. It's going through a different range of motion it's using different muscles slightly it's not producing that same amount of force and so you're dissipating that load to reduce your risk of overuse injuries and so i do recommend that 
Um, but like you said as well, if someone does get injured, we want to be adapted to a certain level of cross training, but we also need a cross training option because when I see runners who are injured, they're struggling to get back to running. And let's just say they, they run for um, their positive mental well-being, And when they can't run because of an injury, they really struggle mentally. But then I say, how about some cross training options? And they're like, no, nah, all I do is run. I don't know how to, I hate the bike, hate swimming. Never, I never had a gym membership. So I can't use any of the other cardio machines. Running is my only option. They get really stuck because they are one to either return to running too quickly and do it too much because that's their only option for some sort of physical and mental outlet. Um, And that's going to flare up their injury. And also the, the recovery experience is going to be like a lot more difficult for them because they're unable to run. They start getting itchy. They start moving. If if they go like one or two days without running, they start getting really anxious, really antsy. And then there's like, Oh, I don't care. I'm just going to go out for a 10 K run. And then they'll just explode into running. And then their injury flares up and they're more down on themselves. And the whole experience is really tricky. And so that, that whole recovery experience is so much easier. If you do say, you know what, I actually don't mind the bike or, you know, I've tried the, cross trainer in the past or the elliptical machine that's been quite good for me let me just use that and so you're still staying active still getting that blood circulating you, you can go for a hike or something you can get in some fresh air it's um it's helping your body both physically and mentally yeah no i totally agree and, and i think it's a, a great case for for cross training and i guess you know strength training is cross training to me i don't really see it as cross training i see it as as part of my run training to be honest yeah, for sure. Like I said, strength training is if you wanted to increase your running performance and you want to be an all-route runner, you need yeah. to have you need to have strength training in your in your session in your week twice a week. Um, that's just a given. If you you're missing a huge a huge gap and you're not really taking full advantage of what you're capable of if you're not doing strength training. I agree, hundred percent. Well, thank you for those. Now, of course, there are 10 chapters and, and people can go um, and have a look at those. Before we get a bit more into how people can have a look at your ebook, I've got um, just five questions here that I'm, I'm asking um, at the end of each podcast. Now, they're just short answers, but I thought it helps the um, listeners get to know you as a person a bit better as well. Yeah, you happy to go with that? Sure, fire away. All righty. So what has been the best piece of running advice you have ever received? Um, I think it's to, I think it'd be to have different goals. Like I, I do have, I made the decision a couple of years ago to have say, not only challenge myself in distance, like how many, like my long run, but also challenge myself in terms of trails, challenge myself in terms of hills, challenge myself in terms of strides or 5k pbs or 1k pbs and just keep the variety up that way because it's improved me as an overall athlete i adapt to different situations but it's also keeping the fun of it as well so i think i'll have that as my answer excellent thank you next what motivates you to get up and run every day um i'm very self-motivated i think just the feeling of exercise first of all there's like the habit of always exercising but I do enjoy, I do enjoy just going out, listening to a podcast and just jumping into some fresh air. I do think that when it comes to races, I love 
delving into trail runs because everyone's so friendly. It's like very community orientated. Everyone's, well, they're less like ego driven and more just encouraging everyone to participate. So I do like that community aspect of races as well. Um, they could be pretty big motivators. Yeah, no, I agree. Who's been your biggest supporter with your running and, and how have they helped you? Um, I haven't had a lot of supporters. I think what started off me with running was my sister. So back before I was a runner, my sister asked me to help her train for a half marathon. So she was training for a half marathon and wanted me to train as well, just for a bit of accountability and just to start off running. So I think both of us motivated each other to get started for the first couple of years. But these days, like, even if I don't have a, a race to train for, I'm still running like four or five times a week. No, no real goals per se, but still just enjoying getting out and having fun. So I think even if I had no goals in mind, I'd still be running and still loving it. It's just a very self-driven exercise that I just love. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Who's, who's your um, biggest role model? Um, good question. I do pay attention to particular like Australian athletes. I pay like, say, run, not running focused, just paying attention to um, athletic endeavours. We just finished the Olympics. Um, say Jess Fox, who was a um, someone who was in the canoe uh, and she just competed in her last, like her last, I think two or three Olympics, she got silver, she got bronze and she was world number one for a couple of years. And everyone was like, she was just always struggling for this gold and then finally got gold this last Olympics. It's extremely motivating. And just like looking at her expression on her face when she finally won and those sort of things that just motivates me to do a lot. I think I um, resonate with um, seeing people achieve like really high really high amounts looking at the rock climbers like even just watching something like a ninja warrior tv show on tv i just get so motivated and want to work out five times a day as soon as i see what they're doing and like what they're currently what their ambitions are and yeah i just i guess i absorb a lot of that just watching other athletes and uh yeah definitely resonates yeah yeah so and lastly what has been the funniest running moment you've ever had oh i might have to think um, the funniest or someone else. Okay. Well, I can share a, I can share a, a run that my brother had last week. He was actually sharing me, uh, telling me about a run he had. He was running alongside these two, these two cyclists and they were getting, um, they're having a, a lot of trouble. He sort of ran past them <clears throat> as they were like dealing with their, one of their chains came off oh, yeah. and then they passed him on the flats, then it got to a hill and he passed them on the hill and then they got to the top of the hill and then they had a flat tire and he just ran past them and said, hi, I said, if you need any help. And one of the cyclists like, we're getting really sick of seeing you. <laughs> and it seemed like everything that went wrong would be at the time that he would pass. And so I thought that was quite funny. Yeah, I remember I used to be a cyclist and I remember once um, I was out mountain biking and some runners ran past me when we were going up a hill and I could not believe that runners were passing me on a bike. I didn't think that was, you know, I was pretty upset, I have to admit. So yeah. I can, um, I, yeah. It goes to show that um when it comes to like performance with like certain gears, like a bike has a certain amount of gears that you can like produce force and get get your forward momentum. The the gear, your, your body as a gear for running is really, really efficient, really motivating. And so like 
struggling on the hills for a bike, like a runner can easily compete with a bike up a hill. As soon as it gets to flats, as soon as it gets downhill, game over. But yeah, it's really interesting to see that. It is. and But I also like that with the, the chain and the flat tyre. That's the beauty of running, isn't it? We don't have to deal with all the, those sorts of things. We just run. Yeah, just need shoes. Out to go. That's it. How awesome is that? Lucky us. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Can you tell the listeners where they can find your ebook? Well, I can actually, um, I can provide a link for you if you if you want to do that, where you can just put great. it in the show notes, and it'll just be yeah. a sign up link to the the ebook. I'll make sure I include volume one as well as volume two in there as well, just so Fantastic. it kind of follows along, um, kind of if you want the whole experience, if you want the whole run smarter experience and how to reduce your risk of injuries, uh, volume one will be there. And so that would probably be the easiest way. Excellent. That that would be great if you could give us that link. So listeners, just go into the show notes and check that out and that will be there. Well, thank you so much, Brody, for coming on and we look forward to next time. Thank you very much. It's always great chatting with Brody. So much to learn. I've added the links for the ebook and Brody's podcast in the show notes. So make sure you check them out. If you got value from this episode, I would love it if you could share it with a friend, either on social media or directly. If you do share it on socials, don't forget to tag me so I know. Have a great week of running and training and have fun out there on the roads and trails. Mm-hmm.